Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. Today's episode is another consumer deep dive with Rick Desai at Listen Ventures. Rick is the head of investments at Listen Ventures and in today's episode we talk about Lessons from Tiger Woods on brand and excellence. And as the audience will find out, Rick is truly a Tiger diehard. We also talk about the economics behind consumer investing and what VCs must look for and how that differs from enterprise investing. Then we discuss the evolution of venture capital and the value-add model of investing in early-stage companies. Rick has a great viewpoint on content-driven commerce and why that's so important in both establishing a brand and a competitive moat in today's hyper-competitive e-commerce landscape. This episode was just fun from start to finish and an extremely valuable addition to the tapestry on consumer investing we are building over here at Chicago Capital. Without further ado, here's my episode with Rick Desai. Rick, thank you so much for joining me on Chicago Capital. It is truly a pleasure to have you on. I appreciate you having me, Matt. I know uh, I'm coming off the heels of my partner, Jeff, so hopefully it's worth your time. <laughs> you know what? I, I think it will be. It's great to have you both on. Jeff was a great interview, and uh, you know I, I learned a ton about consumer investing, as I'm sure the listeners did, as well as any you know entrepreneurs looking to pitch to listen in the future. I gotta ask you though, I've heard that you are an obsessive Tiger Woods fan. Is that true? I am. I they call me at uh, the office. They call me a, a goat chaser. Uh, <laughs> that, that I that I you know I'm I'm from Detroit, from the suburbs of Detroit, so. My my affinity towards LeBron James doesn't make much sense, given Cleveland knocked us out of the, the playoffs many years in a row, and and I shouldn't be a Lakers fan either. But but <laughs> I, I respect what people like LeBron James have done, and I have to really being from Detroit and living in Chicago, I got to go against everyone but the real goat. So I can't I can't be a Jordan fan. And Tiger, I read this book called Tiger, which. A lot of people will say that it was you know, defamed him a little bit, but uh, I read it and was blown away by how much investment he put from the day he was born or his family put. And a lot of the habits that were created in his, whether it was his choice or not, really determined his success and then a lot of his failures. And then I just, I'm blown away by, I admire the talent. If you talk to people on the, if you read the interviews from other pros, yeah. they say that he did things and does things and continues to do things that has never been seen before. Like he's just, there's a massive gap between him and the next guy. Yeah. A lot of respect for, for what he does in the golf course. I know. And I'm, you know, I'm, I think we're all anxiously awaiting his return. He's definitely somebody that I think everybody tunes in sometimes on Sundays just to watch him. And I guess it kind of makes sense from your perspective, you're so involved in the consumer space and consumer investing. A lot of these, you know, a lot of these high profile athletes are becoming brands onto themselves today at a greater clip, I think, than we've ever seen. Obviously Jordan was its own brand back in the nineties, but I think it's really, been interesting to see how some of these athletes are able to craft brands uh, on a scale I don't think we've ever seen before. Well, well one, 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 tying back to Tiger again, in 1996 was the first year he, he played professional. Tom Lehman made $1 million. I think he was the first million dollar, he made a million dollars on tour. It's the first time it happened. Fast forward to, to like 2002, like 120 people made a million dollars. And what's, what's the reason? Tiger Woods. And so people can hate him or love him, but he's the reason the sense of golf took happen. And if you look at the last couple of years, I mean, COVID's a big reason too, but Tiger's resurgence happened. So players have been, most players have been limited by the confines of their sport um, and the contracts that they sign and the creator economy, which is now here, you know, who's the biggest creator than the athletes, I mean, they are creating attention, they're creating hype, they're creating so much. And I love them diversifying their brand into startup investing. Like how many people made money off of Coinbase recently? Like they were all investing at their series A, like the best venture capital in the world, venture capitalists in the world don't get to see Coinbase in the series A. So it's really cool. It's well-deserved uh, that they get to compound their athleticism and their fame into other, uh, other ways. And, and I think you're seeing it ever like a YouTube celebrity to What's happening with Cameo, it's really cool to see the creator economy. Anyone can be a creator, which is really cool. Yeah, no, I think that's something, too, that we've touched upon in, in other episodes, just how easy now it's become for anybody to really start a brand, anybody to start a business, especially with the advent of Shopify and all the different mediums there are to get your message out to 
to subscribers. But I'm curious from your perspective, do you think that has a second order effect of maybe commodifying, you know, what it means to be a creator if there's so much competition to get your brand out there, get your message out there? Does that actually make it harder today for people to stand out? And, and unless you are already a built-in sort of brand in, in terms of an athlete or in terms of celebrity, I'm just curious your thoughts on what it's like nowadays for just your average everyday creator is it harder almost to get to that level where people are following you and investing in you? Yeah, put, put the business school hat on. I don't think everyone should be an entrepreneur. It's, you know, not everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. I, I teach a class at the Kellogg and we ask all the students at the end, we, we force them to get out of the building, launch a startup. And we ask, you know, was this for you? Was, what, did you enjoy being a self-starter, operating in ambiguity, dealing with a lot of uncomfortable situations? And a lot of people respond like, no, I hated it. It was so awkward. I, I just, I needed rigor. I needed structure. I needed someone to tell me what to do. I want to go back to consulting. I'm like, great. It's great that we've identified that for you. So you're not losing uh, a, a massive opportunity cost of not taking that consulting job when you knew you weren't going to be great at. Similarly for creators, I think everyone can be a creator. It doesn't mean everyone should be a creator. And then secondly, the way you pose it, I think it's, that's about capitalizing out of, uh, off of being a creator. Not a lot of people can create without the idea of making money off of it and selling their influence it. Um, so I love that we have tools that are available to anyone. Anyone can shop, sell online, but we all, anyone can design online. Anyone can create. You can have someone in a remote part of the world making music and the whole world can see them. And they're doing it because they love the art of music or the education of music or the therapeutic element of music, not necessarily to go capitalize on it. So I'm very interested in the world becoming creators. I think a cohort of them, an increasingly large cohort of them will, will capitalize on it. But no, not everyone can capitalize off of, of the creator economy. I saw a, a recent study about uh, young kids today. I think it was a few years ago, like most of them wanted to be YouTube stars. And now it's sort of morphing into to TikTok stars. T sorry, TikTok stars. <laughs> Aging <laughs> Yeah, I know. I can't even get the name right. But um, yeah, no, I think it's I think it's a really interesting trend. And I think it trickles down to sort of all kind of levels of development. But in terms of development, and in terms of what you wanted to be when you grew up, I'd love to hear about your path to venture, how you got to listen, you know, what were some of the, you know, formative jobs that you had earlier in, in your career? And what led you to sort of consumer investing in particular? Yeah, I, I've always wanted to say, well, when I was young, I was messing with the computer, and I took it apart. And I knew I had to be an engineer, and and then many years later, I, I, I sold the company, and now I'm a venture capitalist. And that's not at all the story for me. And I think what's really cool about venture capital, but less venture capital, more about entrepreneurship, is that there is no perfect path into any of these realms. Like we just said, anyone can be a, a YouTube influencer or a, a TikTok star. It, it, people do it, and then you look back, and you're like, oh, wow, that was the right path, too. So I think that, that that's really important to recognize. M mine was... Graduated from college in 2004, the economy was back and, and was fortunate to, to land a job on Wall Street, which I was at a bank called Lehman Brothers, which increasingly people don't know. Rest in peace. And then I made it to Chicago and worked at a, a really wonderful private equity uh, firm called Madison Dearborn Partners and learned really what investing was like. You know, They were writing hundreds of $900 million checks to acquire companies, adding on debt. Uh, backing great companies, financial arbitrage, market timing, some strategy, and, and hopefully getting great private equity returns. Our One of the co-founders, and I think the CEO at the time, told us when we left, when we finished our two-year program, that like investment banking, private equity is getting commoditized. It's how much can you pay, it's financial instruments, there isn't any real proprietary nature at that size. Now, people who've graduated from Boots since then have done really cool things at the small cap size, but he, he made something, it was a commodity business. So I knew it was pretty clear to me that I didn't want to stay in that space. I didn't like the idea of helping a company go from $100 million of revenue to $125 million of revenue. I was curious to know how they got their first million of revenue. I was also interested in, at the time, your Mohammed Yunus had just won the Nobel Peace Prize for microfinance. Organizations like Kiva were being founded where people were taking market-based concepts and applying it to the bottom of the pyramid. And, and so I, I knew that if I didn't make a move then, I would likely stay in corporate finance forever. And I moved to India for a year, took a Clinton fellowship and, and spent a year um, working in Indian slums and villages, uh, working on micro enterprises. Uh, and that's where I caught, saw entrepreneurship, where it wasn't for to get on Shark Tank or, or to get in a Y Combinator. It was to survive. How do you mitigate your risks to, to create a better outcome, whether it be getting your kids healthcare or starting a small business? And I loved it. And if they're doing it to make their lives better, how could I do it at my level? So I came back and 
founded a, a, a co-founded a, a startup studio called Dashfire. All of my peers had gone on to business school and all of them were, we were the Facebook generation. We all got on Facebook in 2004. Like, oh, we could have done what Zuckerberg does. No, of course we couldn't. We had no, not even in the, there's no way we could have done that. But we thought we could, we thought we could write some code. And none of us were developers. And so I realized that was the, the, the problem statement I liked is if someone is going to go work at Google one day or eventually Airbnb or leave Goldman Sachs, they probably could be a good risk mitigator and, and run a startup. Let's go build them early stage tech to see if they can prove something. And we went to HBS, Stanford, Kellogg Booth and started pitching our friends and saying, hey, don't enter that business plan competition with a long presentation. We'll give you a product. And so they showed up and a lot of the VCs on the panels were like, whoa, they have a product? They would write, they would write their numbers on it and say, hey, call me. And they raised capital. And our, the tech we built wasn't at the time wasn't, wasn't mind-blowing, but, but it did enough to validate and mitigate risks. And so that's how I got in the space. I didn't think about getting the venture. I thought about solving that problem and, and ran Dashfire for about five years before, before Jeff and I connected and, and took listen to the next level. Did you always have a passion for consumer-focused startups, or was this an opportunity that arose that you couldn't pass down working with Jeff? I got to imagine he was a great podcast interviewee, so he has to be an equally great partner to work with. Yeah, I'm very grateful for, for to be Jeff's partner and the opportunity that he, he's given me and all of us. I can speak to that in a moment, but I, 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 if I, it's easy to have revisionist uh, thinking, but I really liked startups. And now you say that, that's, that doesn't mean anything. But in 2006, 7, 8, 9, it was not that many people were thinking about it. It wasn't being, entrepreneurship wasn't being taught in class. Coding was, there were coding boot camps. Facebook marketing didn't exist. Shopify was an idea. So you couldn't really do something. Maybe WordPress was launched around then. Automatic had launched it. So it, you could see it. I mean, obviously the big funds on the coast were powering the platforms that are now powering all of the entrepreneurship. So, so they got it. I don't know if I was drawn to consumer. I was drawn to the big idea. I never thought I could actually go do it. And then when did Dash, I was like, oh, well, I have a lot more confidence. But what I was drawn to was that energy of a founder who has all of the reasons in the world to not do it. It's expensive to start. It's The ramen diet is not glamorous. You're, you're bankrupting yourself to do it. You're alienating it. No one believes you're doing anything. They're always like, oh, he doesn't work. He's running a startup. This is back in the day. And I love to see them do it. Like, how do you go to your first customer? How do you get your first dollar revenue? How did you land a, a co-founder technologist? Like, that's so cool. And I was just enamored by that group of people and spending time with them. Consumer sort of became more interesting to me. I, I rec By partnering with non-technical entrepreneurs, it's unlikely that you're going to go build a great technology business. You're going to use technology to enable a great business. And we found ourselves gravitating at Dashfire to more consumer businesses and so we weren't going to go build the new Shopify or we weren't going to go build the new algorithm to power something. So consumer fell in backwards to consumer. And then I met Jeff. He was an early investor in Dashfire and he spoke about brand. You know, if you asked me what brand was, I'd be like, oh, a logo or your design. And he spoke about brand in a way that made it emotional and necessary and really changed the way I think about startups. And so brand and consumer go so well together that I, I sort of just fell in love with it. But I, I didn't grow up thinking about consumer brands and I, I wasn't a, a consumer entrepreneur by any means. I love that too. I, Peter Rahal at, at RX Bar came to speak to our class in the fall and just to give you know, that behind the scenes. Did, did he look tell you the whole truth about what he was growing and like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I think he did, he gave us as much information as, uh, as we could handle for that one, uh, one class. But, you know, he talked about growing that business, bootstrapping it from his mom's basement, how, you know, it'd be at parties for three or four years. And he's, I'm still living in my mom's basement, still build, building this, uh, this protein bar out of nothing. But, um, no, it's a fascinating mindset and it's a fascinating risk tolerance you have to have. And I almost, you know, for you, I almost, I know people that work, you know, years to get to Madison Dearborn. It is sort of the pinnacle of a lot of people, especially from where I went to school. You know, you study finance, you grind out two or three years in investment banking, and hopefully you can get that job at Madison Dearborn and then you're set. But you made this really interesting choice. And I'm curious, did you ever have doubts when you made that choice? How scary was that to leave a job that many would consider sort of the pinnacle of uh, corporate finance? Yeah. Uh, ask my parents. <laughs> I, I uh, got to Madison Dearborn. You know, I should stay in private equity or a hedge fund or go to business school. And I took a, a, a nonprofit job in India. And my parents had moved from India to America. I'm like, what are you doing? 
how does that make any sense? Isn't this the time where you go accumulate wealth and put your head down? And we'd love that you want to volunteer and give back, but why now? And I was like, if I don't leave now, I, for me, it was the, the incremental hour or dollar of, of work. Was it worth the incremental return on am I enjoying it? So that was a, a, a really important one. So it was pretty easy for me at the starting Dashfire. And then over the last 12 years now, there's been many days, especially in Dashfire, when you know we were the first check, effectively the first investor in a napkin business. So that means the vast majority of those businesses aren't going to do anything. And you have to wait. I think you're going to have to wait 7, 10, 12 years before you... We're now seeing exits from that, which is great and rewarding. But many days where my peers were now, there were VPs at, at, in private equity and then you know, managing partners and buying their second homes and, and, and like really moving up in the world. And that was hard. I think the last year has actually firmed up a big part of why I was able to do it. And, and this word is maybe overused now, but it was a lot of privilege. Uh, I knew that if I didn't if it didn't work for me, I, I thought I, I was pretty sure I could go get a job. So what's the worst case scenario for me? And I recognize now that was a very fortunate thing that I had accumulated um, in, enough wealth and uh, education and support that I could in the network. But if I didn't have that, I would have never left finance. Are you kidding? If I didn't have that sort of privilege, I would have stayed there forever and made sure that I got every last dollar. So I feel very fortunate that, that I had that. And I think that's so enlightening to hear. I always love to hear about those big pivotal moments in people's careers and, and how they made those decisions. And you're right. There's a lot of founders out there who are taking that plunge and taking on tons of credit card debt and sinking everything they have into these ideas. And it's, I, I think it's a great factor of VC now, it feels like, where so much of it is now revolving around the, fa the founders. You know, The power dynamics, from my understanding, have really shifted in the past 10 to 15 years from where they used to be. Uh, you know, and I'm curious about sort of in your time in VC, is that something you could attest to yeah. as well? Yeah, I mean, it, it's supply and demand. At first, there was very little capital. And, and I mean, you go to the mid 2000s, there wasn't that many startups or that much capital, but it was less capital than startups. And over time, it's flipped the inverse. Like there's too much capital in the market, right? Every day, how many hundred million dollar rounds are happening? Companies going public, SPAC, right? And so I think the, the capital dynamics is one thing. What I think is lagging but becoming more important is investors get to invest in many companies. We, we're highly concentrated, so we do 12 companies in every fund. But some of our peers and some of the bigger shops will do 20, 30, 40 deals out of a fund. We get to diversify our risk. We get to, if one business doesn't do well, we have many more. You know, it's portfolio theory. A founder has one, one business in their portfolio, and, that, and that's their everything. And they are so over-invested in it emotionally health, their, their relationships, their 401ks, their, 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 everything they have, their, their, their credit scores, everything is in it. So when like rec seeing so many founders, especially Dasfire, start, struggle, fail, and what they did to build themselves back up, we'll never, we'll never take that for granted. We, we realize that they're taking a disproportionate amount of the risk. We hope that we can be a, a meaningful yet understand we're a small part of, of their story. And we should do whatever we can to be an unscalable and unscalable part of that. So whatever it takes. If we think it's the other way, which is historically the label of VCs as dicks is, is true because we have terms that allow us to, to exert control on the companies. It's not a wonderful thing. And I hope over time with the mental health discussion around founders is going to change. And we recognize that it's okay if it goes wrong. Like We get a salary. They don't, at the, especially at the earliest stages. So I think that we, more investors need to think that way. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think it's it's really cool, too, that you guys are, or at least you have been actively involved in sort of building that new future by investing in a company like Calm and just how you guys have shaped your portfolio, I think, uh, speaks to that. But I, I am curious a little bit on Listen Ventures. And Jeff gave us a great overview of the background and the thesis. But I keep hearing people say consumer investing is just really hard. You know, venture itself is hard. It's a challenging job. But nailing consumer trends and preferences and being able to make investments on the consumer side is really hard. Some people don't even attempt it. Why do you think there is that sort of a prevailing thought about consumer investments? And how do you guys sort of react to that statement when you hear it? Yeah, it's true. It is hard. I hope no one else gets in the space so we can get all of the deal flow. <laughs> no one invest in consumer startups, please. I think the reference point is off. I think that we often make consumer investing peer technology investing. And when you do that, yeah, it's a very different mindset. Technology companies, software companies over time are getting to 80, 90% gross margins. When Netflix 
bad example because of the content. Let's use Amazon Web Services. When they add a new client, they pay nothing, nothing to host that client. It's nothing. It's just like a tiny little element of, of, their, of their cloud farm. And so that extra customer is 100% gross margins effectively. When you add a new consumer, when you add a new uh, customer to consumer, you're paying the cost of goods sold or the cost of service. Now, consumer software is a little bit different. I'll address that in a moment. But consumer products or consumer services have eight cogs. And, and, and no matter how good you are, it's likely never going to get beauty. I think beauty margins are like 70, 80%. It's never going to get higher than that. I think food is like you know, 25 to 40. And so they're very different businesses. And as very different businesses, you have to appreciate they should be valued very differently. We've spent a lot of time and we've been a culprit here is valuing or, or giving consumer businesses technology multiples when they'll ultimately trade at retail valuations. Like what does is, what is Netflix and Amazon and, and, and Apple trade at and what does a consumer product brand trade at? There's a big difference there. So if we, if we treat the tech, tech, if we treat a consumer business like a technology company, we're just going to see multiple compression and a lot of disappointment. So I'd start there. So understanding what the factors are. And then when you bring in consumer internet, you, you think about churn. Salesforce is a great company. It's one of the best enterprise software companies of all time. You get a customer, you can spend whatever you want on the customer. Every year that customer gets more and more valuable, further integrated. They have more accounts, more clients, more services. They make more money. So you'll spend anything on them uh, and they'll stay for 10 years. In consumer, if you're consumer software or even consumer subscription product, that customer will quit you 100% because it is so easy to go find the, the replacement. So you just have to bake that into the model you have big categories like food, everyone eats, where you can continue to go and get more customers because the market size is so big. If you're talking smaller markets, you have to make sure you structure the deal accordingly where you're understanding you're not going to have a billion dollar outcome here. Does a $60 million outcome work? And so I think you have to understand that element. And that the final piece is where we get excited as brand is the best consumer companies have their users consuming the brand when they're not consuming the product. And that to me is that you can't value or measure that churn or that retention. So like I might have stopped eating someone's food, but I'm reading their content on how to get fit. And then when I'm looking, when they drop the new product, I might come back. So it's a, it's a lumpy, it's a lumpy curve. And the final piece, it's so measurable. You know how much dollars you go to get a customer. And if you can get $2 back on margin in a short period of time, that's a, from a time value of money standpoint, it's way better than enterprise because enterprise takes years to pay back. So it's all about what you put into it. We hope, we think we've, we've got a nice framework to evaluate brand, customer acquisition, the value of, of the customer. And we, we have to be disciplined in, in how we invest up front. I'm curious because, and this is something you guys, I think, spoke about on one of your overheard podcasts over the years. And, and I love this distinction. I think there is sometimes a misconception amongst consumers, maybe you know marketers, advertisers, investors between brand and branding. And I'm curious for you guys at Listen, how you distinguish between the two and how you walk your founders or walk founders through the difference and how you guys see that. Yeah. I like that I'm getting asked this question because I've learned this. I wasn't, it wasn't in my blood or I wasn't trained in this classically. I've learned this watching our team, interesting, our team, eight people, um, six grew up in brand. So that's what they know. That's their DNA. Brand is the why you exist. It's, it's why you come to work every day. It's your North Star. It's your purpose. It's whatever word you want to call it. It's not a function. It's the why. And, and when you know that, it allows you, it informs everything. It informs the branding. It concerns what the personality of the brand is, what the adjectives you to describe it, your tonality. It describes how you look, how you show up, how you act in this world. If you give the brand to a designer, they can think of like, oh, this brand this brand has these attributes, therefore it should be the color blue. That's branding, uh, the, the messaging, the, the way you speak to a customer. So brand informs the branding. Brand is the why you exist in the world. It's the ultimate filter for decision-making on branding, but also the ultimate decision-maker on your company. When you decide, should I do make this partnership? Well, is it on brand? Do they agree with your filter? Do they agree with your North Star? If, they, if you are a brand that believes in a better world, you should not be working with a company that is hurting the world in, a, in an unsustainable way who you hire, who, what products you make. So it's a decision-making filter. And that's what brand is. Branding is how you show up in the world and, and how you look, act, and feel. So those are the differences. Brand infu uh, informs branding and brand informs everything in the business in our view. 
You mentioned kind of the, uh, I know the model is capital and capabilities at Listen. I'm curious about when you guys do make investments in these brands, does that capability model, does it come automatically with the check? Is it something that every founder utilizes in some way? I'm curious about the interplay between founders, startups, and this model that you guys have built and how it actually works. Yeah. The the genesis from my end is value-add investing. So I think I think the world looks less like uh, check writers who have a Rolodex and more like domain experts who happen to write checks because everyone's an investor, right? Like if everyone's a creator, AngelList and equity crowdfunding allows anyone to invest $500 or $5 million, it doesn't matter. And so everyone's an investor. And I think that you can no longer just get by writing a check. If you want to be a professional investor, you have to deliver something more. I think historically that value add has been a Rolodex, which is super important. Council, of course. Uh, and now it's content, right? You know, the the the, the VC blogging is a real thing. Um, brands like First Round and Andreessen have research and uh, and really good relationships there. And we think it's actually an execute, like something that you can execute and deliver to them. That's the capability. Some do it with hiring, which is a very very important cornerstone. And we're, we do it with brand and marketing. What what reason? I've explained why we think it's brand and marketing because brand is the relationship between you and your customer. And if you get it right, it creates that moat. Ultimately, someone will take and replicate your entire functionality, but they can't replicate that relationship. So that's why we focus there. When we meet a company, we make sure that they're brand aware. They might already have a beautiful, inspiring, purposeful brand, or they may recognize that without a brand, they're they're eventually going to be co-opted away and they recognize they need it. In no instance will we back a company where they don't think, where they think brand is a cost, not an investment. So once we've understood that and we've evaluated that we have a, a brand aware founder, the question is how can we plug in and make the business better? You're seeing a lot of value-added models at the later stage. The mega funds have it because they have the fees to support it. You're seeing very little of it at the early stage because you don't have the fees to support it. And I think that's a miss because early stage founders need a lot more help than later stage founders. Going from zero to something is a lot harder than going from something to everything. So we figured out a model with our LPs that allows us to do it. and, And we plug ourselves into companies, but we don't tell the company what they should do. We go listen to what the company should do. We have a workshop. We meet with them. We interview and we talk to them. We let them spit everything out so we can understand all of their hopes and dreams. And then we play it back for them. And hopefully frameworks and filters that allows them, oh, wow, that's what we're really saying. That's what our customer is saying. Okay, this is what we need to be. And then we think about where we can help in the customer funnel. Is it brand awareness? Is it brand activation? Is it conversion? Uh, is it growth marketing? And, and we, we become a resource. If we meet the perfect company that doesn't need help, they probably don't need any capital either. So they're probably not talking to us. So uh, we've loved it. Some take more, some take less. Um, but when you take less than dollars, you at least can have access to all of listen. And you mentioned there, your guys' MO is to listen. And I'm curious, as consumer tech has changed so much, it's such a rapid pace, especially in the last few years, the rise of Clubhouse, the rise of TikTok. How does that sort of that interplay work between the emerging tech platforms that consumers are now spending a lot of their time on and how you guys are trying to get a grasp of the cultural temperature, what's going on out there in the culture? Yeah, so I think there's two ways to answer that. One is, what our portfolio companies do? Uh, and then what do we do? So on the latter... We can always be better listeners. I think confirmation bias is a real thing. We might have a great idea. We're like, oh, this is legitimate and it's not backed or reinforced by any true great insight. But that's where we rely on our team. You know, when you have a team that's largely creative in nature, they've grown up building brands. That means they've always been taking the temperature of culture and consumer and putting into their decisions of what is a what does a customer expect from a brand? What values do they expect? How do you act on that? We lean on them. They're, they tell us what's happening in market. I. Jeff and I talk about all the time, we're not the, the consumer that anyone cares about anymore. How do we go talk to, how do we get that consumer on our team? And how do we talk to more of those consumers? So our creative team is in the know. They're, they're thinking about updating their skill sets. It's part of their day-to-day is just being smart on culture and brand. And we, we, we take those, we have thematic jammers where they're presenting their thoughts that inform us. And then we have our listener program, which we are bringing in 26 to 31-year-olds uh, it's a 22 to 31 year old. So that's a generation that we are not. And they are telling us what they're seeing, what they're doing, what they're thinking, what they're listening to, what they expect. And that that drives our decision making. So not about us anymore, much more about the team, our team and the people we bring on to inform us. 
I can't imagine. I feel like it would be so challenging to operate this model you guys have without the listener program. You know, I, I, I don't, it makes so much sense. I know other VC firms have fellowships that will have college students sort of help them out with investments. But for you guys, it seems like such a perfect combination of the demographic that's going to end up being a customer for a lot of these brands you're investing in and, and you're getting that feedback in real time. Yes, yes, and yes. We demoed the standard 10 week program that business schoolers off, business schools and even undergrad offer. We're like, go spend 10 weeks at X. And it sucked. And, and I've told both all the schools this, so this isn't new information. Uh, the person who shows up for 10 weeks, by the time they're up and running, you know, it's the eighth week before they can truly speak intelligently and confidently about the business. And so there's just not a mutual win there. And you also start attracting people who don't want to be in venture capital. They want to be at McKinsey or they want to go work at Airbnb. And they love that at business school, which they should, I'm not trying to take that away, get to experiment with everything that they want. So it makes sense to go spend 10 weeks somewhere. What we want to do is create an immersive environment to foster true new investors. So we're actually now targeting pre-admits. So people who have joined, who are getting into business school, like I'm going to be in venture capital. So we have them join in their fall and, and spend at least a year with us, maybe the summer. And then in their second year, use the Listen brand to help them recruit because it takes a lot of time so that when they graduate or when they're recruiting, they can say, yeah, I invested at Listen for two years and I still happen to go to business school. So we want to do whatever we can to, to integrate them, help them make decisions with us or help them lead decision making for us because they are the consumer. We are not. I guess this is a, a bit more of a meta question about, you know, shifting gears to one particular area that that you guys look to invest in, direct to consumer brands. And I know direct to consumer is a channel, but I, I think a lot of people will just Jeff must have said that five times. Yeah, he did. He did. Yeah, 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 yeah. He did. Jeff, Jeff, Jeff did say that. But then I, you know, I read Packy McCormick a lot and he talks a lot about DDC and he, he, he brings it up too. So it's been, you know, it's been into my yeah. head now that directing consumers a channel, but I'm curious, you know, and, and referencing Packy McCormick, some of his writings, but, you know, he talks a lot about how competitive this sort of e-commerce retail, retail business now has become. And we spoke about this a little bit at the top of the show, but how easy it is to create a DTC brand online through Shopify, how basically all of the software needs are, are built in and modularized and you can stand up a brand pretty quickly now. That is increased competition to the point where it, it is almost untenable in some situations. His argument is that right now as a DTC brand, you need to establish yourself. The way to combat that is to have must-see content that you are putting out into the universe and that your, your customers are engaging with and through just general social media engagement. And the second point really reminds me a lot of CatchCo and you know what they were able to do with that Facebook community. And my understanding is you know, Ross Gordon built up that Facebook communities to be so robust before he even tried to monetize it. So I guess my question is, are those two things that you think are almost necessary nowadays for DTC brands to succeed? And by the way, very much congratulations on the Series B for, for CatchCo. Yeah, thank you. I typically don't like the congratulations on, on rounds, but this was uh, an important round because it allowed some key stakeholders to take some money off the table. We're all in. We believe there's a, a much brighter future. So I will take the congratulations on behalf of that company. Yes. And I think that the world isn't venture capital-backed D2C companies. I think if you're watching what's happening with Therazio and a lot of these companies that are buying up Amazon brands, there are 100x making up that number, brands that have never heard, or companies that have never heard of venture capital, but they were entrepreneurial. So they found a widget. They made the widget in China. They Facebook's you know DIY. So you jump on Facebook, send some ads, launch your Shopify store. And now, two years later, you're doing $600,000 of revenue and $150,000 of EBITDA. And this one-person company is like, wow, this is great. Meanwhile, you have all these startups who are like, with $0 of revenue, raising at a $5 million valuation saying that I'm going to go do something great. But in reality, the business, the, the, the entrepreneur in the middle of America is launching a company and way more capital efficient, way more successful. And when that business plateaus, they go and start the next one. So in those situations, do I think you need to build fascinating content and an immersive community? No, I think that's just a great business and they know how to make money. If you're trying to build an enduring brand and a brand that's going to go be exponential in size, meaning growing faster than their competitors are growing and taking up market share or creating a new market. Yes, you have to. And that's not to say that I have anything against spending paid dollars. I actually love when companies can effectively scale their paid media, but most of those companies don't can't do it if they're not also building really wonderful relationships with their consumers. I think the best brands attract consumers to have a relationship with the brand 
But the, the ones that are even better than that are the ones where consumers show up and have a dialogue with each other. And the brand is in the background facilitating the conversation. And that's what Ross has done at Ketchco. Uh, he started, a, in the days of Birchbox, he started a, a, a subscription tackle box. So you're getting bait and tackle in the mail and, and uh, pr providing surprise and delight to a consumer who goes out to sea and like is being surprised and delighted every day. So really on brand. But he recognized that the whole model, two things, his two insights uh, were you went from catch fish and release it environmental to catch snap and release. Like you catch, you take a picture, post it Instagram or Snapchat at the time and then release the fish. And he's like, I got to be there. I got to be in the middle. I'm not like, I can help him with the catch. And then I got to be in the middle. And then he recognized that the, the modern angler is no is not only learning from their grandfather or uncle, they're also learning on YouTube. And so he went to those channels and he started making content. That's his brilliance, his unfair advantages. He can make low budget content look unbelievable. And their Instagram is is just, is you can get lost in their Instagram. It's, it's phenomenal. The quality of their YouTube videos, they're unchartered. It's great. We believe they're a great performance media company too, but maybe they're terrible. And it's because the content is so good. But point is, yeah, they built an immersive community that hangs out with each other. They generate tr incredible emotional content that people want to spend time doing, even if they're not shopping the product. They're going to constantly be reminded of Catchco, so they make, they'll come back and spend more. So that is content, community, and commerce. That's the intersection of those three things in that brand. But I appreciate you calling it out. Yeah, of course. No, it had to. I mean, they're all over the the Chicago Twitter headwaves right now or airwaves right now, and rightfully so. And I do recommend everyone go check out their Instagram and social media. It's amazing. And I, I just think it's a really cool sort of blueprint for, for any future brands that are attempting to sell into these niche kind of audiences or what may seem like a niche audience. Although I'm also finding out the more and more I talk to people from Listen, the more and more I learn about the world around me. I guess fishing is like 50 million people a year do uh, it. It's, it was I had met Ross in 2012. I was like, you're a performance marketer. And I was at 1871 at the time. So like, why don't you go teach a class at 1871? He did. And he's like, I'm watching out of my garage, a taco box. He's like, oh, that's a tiny business. Like you're gonna make a bunch of money, but that's tiny. I, I thought that. Met him again in, in 2015, thought the same thing. And then in 2017, saw some of his numbers. And he had this slide that said, fishing is larger than um, tennis and golf combined. And you're like, mind blown. Like fishing's bigger than Tiger Woods, I'm in. And the, what was most attractive, this was right after the 2016 election, his geography, his zip codes is all of America. It's places that some of these new brands are not talking to, in fact, maybe excluding, and he is, and his brand, his company is. And the livelihood that's involved, involved with fishing, like it is just a lifestyle. I think a lot more people came on to fishing during COVID, but there are people who fish in, in, in economic downturns Fishing starts go up because it is a low cost participation sport, unlike golf or skiing or tennis. So yeah, a lot of people fish. It will never overlook a small market again, because if you can have beat the big fish in the small market, I hate that pun. It's really easy to make puns in this space. Like we talk <laughs> about how we're all aficionados now, but uh, yeah, small market is okay if you can be the big player. Yeah, yeah. No, I first off, love that pun. We welcome all puns at Chicago Capital. I'm curious, though, about, you know, another trend that that you have spoken about and you've talked about on some of your overheard podcasts, audio, the future of audio. And people might say talk radio has been around forever. Audiobooks have been on tape since the 90s and podcasts have kind of been around for years. But it does feel like 2020 and maybe 2019 a little bit were this inflection point in the audio industry. Um, just curious what your overall thoughts are on the future of audio and you know what consumer tech platforms you think are helping shape that future. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big, I feel... There's two 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 things we in our 2018 we did our you know our, our thematic jammer in 2018. There's two things we talked about there. One was therapy, which we've been all in on therapeutic and therapy, and one was audio, in which we haven't begrudgingly we haven't. I mean, I think I think we're still early there, so that's okay. I think that the big shift for me in audio was these things, the AirPods. We're moving to a hand-free world. People want their hands back. We recognize we're obsessed with our. I'm I'm a phone addict. If it buzzes, I, I have two young kids. If it buzzes, my mind goes there. And it's, it's it, the, the feelings of guilt I have when I know the phone, my mind believes the phone's important, more important than my kids is really troubling. But we don't know what to do about it. Like, we, we don't, like this is part of our therapy thesis is, you know, we're on 24-7. We're highly productive. If we're not productive, someone's going to be more productive than us. We care about our social image. And we know it's painting. We know it's killing us. We know it's hurting us. 
Um, and we don't know what to do about it. I think anything that can get us off the phone and into your life, off your device, into your life, that's going to win. Like it'll be calm. It might be Ketchco um, getting you on a boat. And I think the AirPods, you, some might say, Rick, that's still technology. It's still in you. Yeah, but it's letting you put the phone down, letting you go for a walk. Like that, probably Greg Kaplan's whole thing at, at his new business spot is get off your device and go for a walk. And so I, I believe in that. I think that we're going to do that. I also think in the world of you know life, life work optimization, you'll have a virtual assistant in your ear. You will run all your commands in your ear. So I'm a big believer. I think the, the big cultural insight for me is video, and this is pre-COVID too, it prevents you from imagining. Like when our kids watch TV, they're being... They're, be, they're seeing their imaginations on the screen. They don't need to do any work. When they read a book, they have to imagine. And when you listen with your ears, it's amazing what you can see. So, so I, think it's an, it, I think people are going to recognize that if we want to be 24-7 all the time, we don't have time to sit down and read a book. We're going to be listening to everything. We're going to be communicating that way. So big believer in that. I think there's, we're just so early in, in the quality of it, whether it be synchronous like Clubhouse or asynchronous, leaving messages for people, virtual assistants, track dominoes. I think dominoes is like the world's greatest technology company. They started with, you know, a store, then car delivery, then phone ordering, then app ordering, and now Alexa ordering with Domino's is doing it, then you know, it's going to be a real technology trend. I mean, whatever technology goes into creating those cinnamon stick uh, desserts they have, I, I, it's lights out. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I'm curious. And I, and I kind of love that thesis too, because 10, 15 years ago, I, I don't know. I think you brought up a lot of reasons why audio is actually good for us and, and it's better for the you know child development. And um, it, 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 I would say 10, 15 years ago, just because something is good for you as a consumer and makes sense from that standpoint, doesn't mean the consumers would actually adopt it en masse. But I think we've sort of hit an inflection point in the last 10 to 15 years. And, and Calm is, again, another proof of that. But it does feel like people are investing more in themselves. And it does feel like audio is another component to that. Yeah, I think the investing in themselves is, is hap- it's here. Like, we care about what our minds. I think Calm, I think what Alex told Jeff when he met him many years ago, said that we put so many dollars and attention into our bodies and nothing into our minds. And Jeff's like, here's the check. You're right. Um and typically, you don't like that I'm going to build the Uber for X, but he's like, I'm going to build a Nike for your mind. And you're like, oh, here's another check. You're right. And so I think mindfulness therapy that's happening. I think nutrition, like what you put in your gut, it, the relationship with we have our, with our food is, is strengthening. And we care about everything that goes into our body. Like, like the FDA can't tell us that avocados are bad and sugar is good. That's done. I think with, with our exercise, like I know Peloton's had a tough week, but you know, how do you get your best self with your sleep? Calm, you could argue that Calm is actually a sleep brand. Uh, with relationships, you know, if you, know, you do all this and you want to have relationships with friends, family, uh, your loved ones, we've invested recently in two brands. One's called Slumberkins, which is better parent child relationships, and a business called Dame, which is a sexual wellness business. Their our product is, is a vibrator, better relationships with self, and then, of course, money and livelihood. So those are things that happen, and those are all factors. They're actually quite integrated. Just because you eat really well, if you, if you, if you sleep really well, but you don't eat really well, well, your sleep's going to get impacted. And if you're not sleeping really well, you're probably going to eat poorly. So they're all related. And we think everyone has the opportunity to be their best self. And brands that may sell a, a novel product, if they're leaning into how it makes your life better, I mean, that has staying power. So we look at that lens for every deal that we do now. Is, is there something that creates the better human as a result? It prevents us from, we probably miss out on a lot of deals by using that framework because we might miss out on a thematic or a, a fad that might last two to three years and lead to a really great company. But we also know there's going to be the next company and, and we're not going to get them all right. So that's been a really good filter for us. I'm curious as a consumer investor about unplugging. I, I mean, when you, if, I don't know if you have eight sleep, the product, but if there's, a great, if there's a great consumer product that you see and you're like, wow, I love this. You know, do you ever get a tinge of like, man, I wish I could have been at the seed round for these guys. Oh, all, are you able the to- all the time. I was probably like the, the biggest laggard on Peloton. I didn't get, I, I got a Peloton in December of 2020. So like five months ago and I'm like getting on board. I'm like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. And I don't even like cycling. This is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my whole entire life. Like this, everything about it was like, how can anyone go to the gym again? So yes, like things like that. And I think it also shows a lot of the biases. We see deals all the time. Founders know way better what's happening in the world than we do because they're living the problem and they're building the solution. They're getting smart. Like I'm not saying that I'm not saying anyone should have any pity for us, but we're going to get a lot of it wrong because we're not the founders and we're not living in the moment that they are. 
And that's just a reality we have to accept. But yeah, I see it all the time. Switching gears, I guess, a bit to geography. So I lived in New York for four years and going back as far to 2014, 2015, Peloton was everywhere. People, you know, where I worked and clients were always talking about Peloton. And I do think there are some sort of, there's something to be said about coastal hubs having these brands really catch on early or these consumer tech platforms catch on early and eventually making their way across the, you know, the rest of the U.S. But do you feel that there are still advantages to building a brand and building a company in the Midwest and trying to sell to or sell out of those coastal hubs at first, trying to establish yourself here? Or does it just depend on the geography and the end customer? Yeah, my hot take is I think that the geographic boxes that I know a lot of my friends in Chicago will contribute to, I think are absolute, you know, excuse my language, but bullshit. I think that I would say this before COVID, I think demonstrated this quite clearly. You can make a movie outside of Hollywood. You can trade stocks out of New York. Like you can build a startup anywhere. Do I think that the best technology companies are going to come out, best infrastructure technology companies are going to come out of Silicon Valley? Yeah. Do I believe some of the best brands are going to come out of New York and LA? Yeah, I do. They have a, like LA. They just, they are brands. Like everyone who lives in LA is this cool brand. Similarly with New York, if you go to a street corner in Manhattan, the confidence and the swagger that someone has in New York, you're just like, oh, wow, you're just so much cooler than I am. So I think there's something inherent about those two markets specifically when it comes to brand. Consumers are everywhere. I, I do think Chicago is a really great representation of the average American consumer. And I think having a presence in Chicago is really important. Do I, I don't think it's the only place you can start a consumer brand. But I love that we're in Chicago. We have deals on the coast. We're going to have deals everywhere. I wish we were better at finding deals in New York. I wish I was in Peloton, in New York in 2014. So that's a big opportunity for us. We like Chicago. We, I think we like Chicago even more post-COVID because we like it here. And we know that geography doesn't limit us from where, where we can be capable. And you've been kind of involved in the ecosystem here for 10, you know, over 10 years. I think going back to your time at 1871 in, in Dashfire, how would you say the startup community here has, has grown and progressed in your time that you've been here? Yeah, there, there was a post by, in Pando Daily in like 2012 that said it was called Midwest Mentality. And it basically was a massive takedown piece on Chicago saying there's no way in an ecosystem where people leave work at six o'clock to take care of their kids. Can you launch successful companies? And the amount of energy, like it brought Chicago together and pushed them forward. And someone said to me, he's like, Rick, do you agree? And the comment back to me is like, if Twitter had started in Chicago in 2008, and it said, hey, can you provide us unlimited capital with no business model? I don't think Chicago would have supported it. And that's okay. We supported a lot of really great businesses in 2008 that have done extremely well for this ecosystem. Groupon, Grubhub, Fieldglass, like, like Cleversafe. We've done a great job. But that type of business would never have found funding here because the, the Midwest mentality, in my view, is find product market fit by revenue, not by engagement. And that's okay. But fast forward to, to 2021, we've gone from being on the ground floor of the new internet to being on the third floor. Are we on the 10th floor where the valley is? No, but we don't need to be there yet. We're moving at our pace. So I think the change has been incredible. And I think what's awesome, it hasn't been all intrinsic, meaning it hasn't happened from only the people who started this community. So a massive hat tip to all of the players who, who took us from the dot-com bust to 2009, 2012, 1871. When you look at the energy that came in from that flanked this ecosystem, that was awesome. New accelerators, new ways of thinking. You know, one of, you know, I'm a big fanboy for Ezra at Starting Line. Like he just he he is quite confident in telling the world what he thinks, and very humble to tell him when he got it wrong. Like he puts himself out there. Like he's the only one one of us that puts himself out there and speaks with with a voice and with authority. And that wasn't happening before. So I love that we've been flanked by new thoughts, new innovation, new perspectives. I think that's really, really important. I look forward to more of that. Yeah, I mean, the hottest or one of the hottest consumer tech platforms of 2020, basically born and bred here in Chicago and Cameo. So I, I think it's just further validation. I also think it's so cool to see when success comes to Chicago founders, to venture funds, raising a new fund. There's such an outpouring here of camaraderie and congratulations, even startups that were maybe an anti-portfolio company. It's just, there's so much, I think. Oh, Cameo's leading the, the anti-portfolio over here. Listen, uh, <laughs> Uh, we got that wrong, not just once. We got it wrong twice. So we 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 wear we wear that one proudly. <laughs> yeah, Jeff also mentioned that as well on the last podcast. But yeah, no, I think it's I think it's really fascinating to see. And yeah, I think it makes one of the great 
places to start a company for, you know, one of the reasons why it's one of the great places to start a company. But Rick, you know, this has been amazing. I did want to ask before we sign off, favorite Chicago restaurants? Yeah, Giants up in Logan Square. If you haven't eaten at Giants, it's, they like 20 tables, small. If you can eat at the bar, you can watch them cook. When they went shut down with COVID, they provided a delivery vehicle and their food was like the best delivered food you could get. Just as such a cool, authentic, really Chicago, great vibe in there. They're, they're you know, Italian-American fusion and just so fun, great energy. It looks like it. What I love about New York City is that every hole in the wall has such character and, and feel. And a lot of other cities try to replicate that. Like we're going to make a hole in the wall, but you realize it's not authentic. Giant is authentic. Like you feel really great about it. But can I ask you a question before we depart? Oh boy, hit me. What are you listening to? We always have to ask what, what you're listening to. Well, first, the Overheard podcast absolutely is uh, is on my list. But yeah, I, I go through cycles with what are kind of my favorite podcasts. Um, right now, I'm doing a lot of uh, How I Built This with Guy Raz. I actually take my guests' recommendations for podcasts, and I'll usually go like two weeks deep uh, into them. And then I'm also listening to the audiobook. It's called The Seven Powers. It's a really great book. It talks about branding, network effects. And then aside from that, I'm listening to a, a ton of Chicago Bears podcasts as we just drafted Justin Fields. I, I'm struggling. I'm not a Bears fan. I'm from Detroit. But I'm, I'm also, uh, I don't like Ohio State. I'm a Michigan <laughs> fan. So, so this, this is, is going to be tough. tough to hear all this is going to be a Fields jersey. It's going to be tough. tough. Tough couple of years for you, Rick. But um, yeah, no, I think Acquired, How I Built This, those are two great podcasts that I think entrepreneurs really enjoy. And as you know, somebody who's trying to get better at you know looking at early stage investments, I've 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 loved those thus far. So um, I, I just want to give you a shout out, man. Like like you're in the early innings of building this, and and you're basically a founder of a startup. So pretty 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 cool that you've done this, and you've got a great roster so far. I'm really pumped for you. It's awesome. Rick, I really appreciate that. I mean, you're definitely, you just definitely earn an invite back, maybe two invite backs, basically. I'd expect those in the mail. Really appreciate your time, Rick. Thanks so much for coming on. We can't wait to have you back on again. Thanks, Matt. If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio and advisory firm learn more about manifold at www.manifold.group and please tune in for the next chicago capital episode